Since the mid-20th century, we have seen the medium of communication, news reports, and data go from a dependency upon the printed page to the audiovisual and now to the present digital age. The results have been nothing short of a seismic shift concerning the modern barrage of unlimited voices the average person must sift through. Back in the day, you had to have a degree of prominence, be answerable, tested, and have a telecommunication backing to get to be widely heard. Now all you need is a social media account and typically no accountability, and you could broadcast your own ideas. Bringing about a world that is filled with sub-narratives, the side stories that are used to distract this from the big story, which is God's meta-narrative. And when sub-narratives get elevated to meta-narrative status, the ultimate conclusion is not just an out-of-focus existence, but an out-of-commission life. In this episode of Keep It 100, we will conclude our conversation on narratives, talk about the most dangerous narrative of all, and conclude with some takeaways to fortify you in the battle for your narrative. Welcome to Keep It 100 Podcast with Sean and Krista Smith. Join us in this space where we take on real issues with real insight and real inspiration. This podcast is for those not looking for temporary relief to change circumstance, but revelation to forever change lives. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode. Just kidding, you guys. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Keep It 100 with Sean. And Krista. This is going to be the final installment on narratives that I really believe are going to challenge you to fortify your stand. We're really excited about this. Hope you enjoyed last week. If you've not listened to it, you need to go back and listen to it with Andy Bird of YWAM and the Sin. It's incredible. Such a good conversation. Wasn't it? Mm -hmm. But we're going to pick this thing up, and we really believe that this is going to help you. First of all, let's just start off. We've got some ministry updates, Chris. Yeah, right? we've been to some incredible places, seeing awesome things happen. It's been so cool. We went to Bethany Church in New Jersey. Yep, it was cold, but it was awesome because we saw a lot of people get saved. You preached yeah. two Sunday mornings at one campus that packed out two services. I spoke three Sunday mornings. Then we came together. You spoke Sunday night. I spoke Monday night. It was an incredible testimony that came to us about a gal that had hit her head. It was some sort of accident. And for all intents and purposes, she had a loss of memory like that, that we would consider someone that maybe is battling dementia. And she literally had to write down thoughts and conversations or she would lose it. She had bad pain in her neck. She was not, she lost certain motor skills. She couldn't put her finger on her nose. There was a complete disorientation. But during a healing meeting, we got a chance to pray. And it was so cool because as we were praying, she immediately felt a pop. She felt like all the pain leave her neck. She was immediately able to put her finger on her nose. But it took just about, I think, a week after that, where all of a sudden in the middle of a conversation, all her memory came back and including wow. not just all the stuff that had happened since uh, she started struggling, but even the things that led up to the accident. And it was incredible. When you have that back, imagine a, a young gal, perhaps in her thirties, all of a sudden being healed to where she's not forgetful. She says she threw away all those journals. She didn't have to write down all her stuff. What an incredible miracle working God we serve. It's amazing. When you shared with me, cause she had shared that with you at during like an altar time. And then I got to hear a little bit of the testimony, a little bit more of the story. And when I learned that she wasn't even able to do basic things. Her short-term memory was so non-existent. She's writing in journals just simply to keep track of conversations and things she's thinking about. And literally in one moment with God, he restores everything. And I just want our listeners to, whenever we're sharing these testimonies, just let them literally sow into your life the power of our God, right? The power of God's faithfulness and goodness that we're seeing so many healings and restoration and things that have been, people have been dealing with for years or a year or a car accident or this, that, or the other. We're seeing God just come in and do 
powerful exploits right now. And it's just, it really is incredible. We saw a lot of healings, released prophetic ministry, um, some really strong prophetic ministry that just really, I think, spoke to the body and some even some key leaders in the house. That's always really cool because God was just doing such a cool work within Bethany Church. It's such a group of hungry, hungry people that love God, have seen God move in previous years. And yet God's about to do something brand new in that house. And just our part in it uh, for this past weekend, it was a real privilege to partner with them. We love the leaders and they're just a genuine group of people that just love God. And you know, the takeaway for that, for many of you that are listening, is that sometimes you face a condition, a disease you're battling or someone in your family. Yeah. It's easy just to learn to live with it and to learn to manage it and kind of forget that we serve a miracle working God. And so let That's her right. breakthrough be your breakthrough. And right now, just receive healing or pray, lay hands with fresh faith that God is going to heal that loved one, that family member, that friend, a person you work with, person you go to school with. Let's just believe that we serve a miracle working God. If the enemy is going to hit uh, the nations of the world with a pandemic uh, disease with variations on it, let's just declare right now that our God is greater and that healing will be greater where sin does abound, grace does all the more abound. Hey, right after that, uh, we went to Dallas and we we're part of the Revive Conference. It was School of the Spirit. It was so great to be with Joe Odin. I think he was kind of the convener of the conference. Uh, it was in North uh, Texas. We were there with Mama Cindy Jacobs. Love her. The Hennessy's. It was at Post State Trinity Church. It was just powerful. Yeah. Just a mighty time of encouraging leaders to embrace the ministry and power of the Holy Ghost. Jesus got up out the tomb that we wouldn't just be weighed down with just religious, predictable services, but that we could have off the chart Holy Ghost, spontaneity, unprecedented, unpredictable services. That's book of Acts and that's what we need. It is. And, you know, just seeing God continue just to move mightily in all over this nation. We are seeing so many hubs of revival and such powerful moves of God. And then from Dallas, we then flew for Sunday services morning and evening to New Life Church, great house, great leaders. And again, just a hungry group of people that want more of God. And we just saw God be God, right? We're, we're seeing people get ministered to, breakthroughs, deliverances. We're seeing salvations happen and we're seeing lives get impacted by Jesus. And just what a powerful time. It was. And literally, it was so cool. As you think about it, we left New Jersey, we went to Dallas, and then we went to Jacksonville, Florida. At least the latter two cities were a lot warmer. Everybody knows how I feel about warm weather. Okay. It's no secret. <laughs> it's, it's a real thing for Sean. It's a real thing. <laughs> okay. So I got a question for everyone. I mean, did you guys see the Academy Awards? I actually didn't see it. All I saw was the aftermath Ooh. of the Will Smith, Jada, and Chris Rock situation, right? The shade, the slap, and the subsequent sizzle. Yes, it was. Oh my God. When I saw it, I saw obviously all the YouTube, it started trending on Twitter. I thought it was fake. I said, man, there's no way Will, come on somebody, get jiggy with it, Will, is going to walk up and slap Chris Rock, right? I mean, it, it just, it was unbelievable. And then you could begin to see kind of that there was something unique in terms of response of Chris Rock. Right. But then a moment, the moment Will began to release that anger, the profanity, and everything. He was sharp and crunchy, y'all. You could tell, uh-oh, this is real right now. You know, I think there was such a shock and a dismay because we saw something we haven't really seen before. Uh, we saw an A-lister actor do something so incredibly public, and we've typically heard about things like this. We hear about things with celebrity people, but it's often done behind, or it's always done behind closed doors. Like, we don't hear, we don't, we hear about it, but we don't see it. This is one example on live television that we watched Will Smith go up in front of everyone, and we have to understand, this is like a work situation. Situation. These are actors, they're basically at a work party. Let's view it like that. And in the midst of a work party, in the midst of this like supposed to be really fun night, Will responds incredibly emotional. And I know people are like, well, you know, Chris Rock made fun of a medical condition. Well, here's the 
here's what's interesting. And everyone can kind of choose what how they land on this, because I think this is a really good thing for us to kind of like look at and pull, pull ourselves from the place of what do we think about this? And how do you respond in the midst of this? Because this is what's really incredible. We have a man that moments before uh, gets up and basically is fully unhinged and just unleashes and publicly assaults someone on national television. And Chris Rock just kind of goes on, right? Doesn't fully respond. And although he's not really understanding the intensity of, the, of Will's response, it's really clear he's shocked and he's stunned. Like, why mm-hmm. is this so such an extreme response? We later learn that Chris says he had no idea about Jada's medical condition. So he was doing it simply out of just the simplicity of she had a short haircut. He had no idea it had any medical implications. And so all the more, it just shows what a disconnect the situation is. And of course, people can say, oh, I don't believe that. That's not true. Well, let's just take things at face value, right? Let's just, rather than try to actually uh, break down someone's motives, let's just take things at face values. Right now, Chris Rock is saying he didn't, you know, know. But I think Jim Carrey, of all people, another comedian, he actually shared really powerful insight. And Jim Carrey actually said this. He goes, and we're just going to kind of pull this quote he said in in an interview. He said, I see it as actually a larger issue. It's an issue of the boundaries being broken, boundaries and allowances and permissiveness to certain behaviors. It's beyond our bandwidth. And we're starting to see the symptoms of what it's like to be living beyond your bandwidth and cracking under pressure. This is, that's what this was. It was more than just an insult to someone's wife. And then Will followed up in his acceptance speech, right? And he says, Richard Williams, because he obviously won best actor for playing Serena and Venus's father. And Richard Williams was his name. He says he was a fierce defender of his family. In a sense, like justifying what he just did, that he was defending his family. In this time of my life, in this moment, Will saying this, I'm overwhelmed by what God is calling me, calling on me to do and be in this world. And here's what's really interesting is how convoluted of a narrative Will created in the midst of massive contradiction. You know, it's so true. And, and, and we'll be the first to say, and Will would later come out with an apology. And obviously our Christian response, we're praying uh, obviously for Will and Jada and praying for Chris. And, and imagine you're Chris Rock and you're slapped in Ooh. front of t- hundreds, perhaps definitely tens of millions, maybe a hundred million people around the world. Uh, there were people in China that saw these are people in Australia, all over the world, the UK. And so just imagine how difficult that is. But then to your point, Boo, you were saying that, you know, Will was trying to couch it or pass the narrative that as Richard Williams was a fierce defender of his family, so am I. But the, but the truth is, number one, uh, <laughs> Richard Williams wasn't out slapping folks to our understanding. But the other thing is that he tried to put that slap as a blow of defense, but really it was a blow of offense. Hmm. He was offended by what was said because if, you know, Chris Rock came over and assaulted and physically accosted Jada, then that's a whole different attitude and a whole different response. But that's not what we're, what we're saying. And if anyone thinks we're kind of picking on Will. Will said as much uh, in his uh, the day after he came out and he apologized and, and I'll give him credit and we'll, we'll take his word at it. He, he apologized to Chris Rockford and he, he admitted, he says, in my business, I should be able to take jokes like that. That's part of the business, part of kind of what we do. These guys are multimillionaires. I think I heard that Will lives in like a some crazy five, six digit, you know, square foot mansion. And yet, you know, you, you begin to see that there are people that are hurting. But let me get back to this point. You know, what I learned from that is that we can talk ourselves into anything because somewhere along the line there had to be an internal narrative because our internal narratives justify our beliefs as well as our actions so i don't know that i'd ever even unsaved i don't know it would take a lot for me to walk up and slap a man i actually don't ever recall in my life bc before christ definitely not ad although i I love to slap some devils y'all but i've not slapped anyone but imagine the narrative what what is the soundtrack going on in your head that allows you to do it but think about it. When those narratives are 
not true and they lead to destructive thoughts and behaviors. At that point, you can choose to carry around the false but comfortable narratives or you can look to destroy them. And I'll take it face value that Will next day with his apology was basically acknowledging, okay, you know what? Uh, what I did was wrong. I apologize, Chris. So uh, so I, I appreciate that. Inc. Magazine, INC Magazine uh, quoted Will as saying, I reacted emotionally. And the, the article goes on to say, Boo, what Smith experienced wasn't just a poor lapse in judgment. It was an example of what psychologists refer to as emotional hijack or amygdala hijack with the amygdala is the front portion of your brain. And so what is it really saying? It's really saying that we have a natural tendency to think that the thoughts we generate in our mind are our own. And so instead of, uh, you know, we have to recognize our thoughts. You you have this phrase, assess and accommodate, right? <laughs> yes, I do. So instead of getting bamboozled by what pops into our mind regarding ourselves, that it is a thought, we need to tell ourselves that it is a thought. Nothing more, nothing less. We see a thought for what it is. We're not ensnared by the baggage that typically comes along with it. The drama, the glitz, the promise, the fear, whatever it makes at that point to be the brass ring to be grasped, we have to understand that you have to take narratives captive or narratives will take you captive. And I, you know, I want to pull this apart a little more because I think this is really important. And, you know, I talked about how Will got up in his acceptance speech and he's like, I'm overwhelmed by what God is asking me to do. And he felt like, and again, if you read on further in his acceptance speech, he talks about being a light and being um, love and God's asking all these things from him. And just 15 minutes prior, he assaulted someone. So the contradiction, just because you pull out the God card, doesn't justify what you just did. Not only, not only does it not justify it, it actually highlights the disconnect of the way in which you're living, the fragmented belief systems within you, the fragments of narratives within you. So what I saw was a man that was unhinged. I saw a man you talked about, which I think is really interesting. We talk about as emotional hijack. Well, I would say as a person of, you know, following the Lord, that's a demonic, that's a demonic spirit. You know, what we saw was rage and what we saw was anger. There's a spirit there. Now, I don't know Will Smith. I don't have a relationship with him, but from what I observed, that was not godly behavior. That wasn't behavior that was led by the spirit of the Lord. The only source of that, right, is is the demonic. And so we have to understand that he put a God card on it. And so many times when someone's an A-lister or celebrity or even a famous pastor or a leader, and they do things in which they live in a contradiction of what they know, but because of the strongholds in their life and because of the contradiction, because we're talking about narratives, what you believe, you can believe one thing, but if there's a stronghold that opposes that belief system, your actions will actually live differently. So we're talking about narratives and I'm, I want you to get this, keep it 100 nation, right? I want you to understand a, a narrative is more than just what you believe in your mind. It's what you meditate on in your heart because what you meditate on in your heart is actually what you will live out in the actions of your life. That is so good. It's so true. And you know, I think what happens is when those things come out, they introduce us to the fact that what are the false beliefs, the false narratives yeah. that I adhere to and somehow some way, usually when these kind of things happen, you get help. And it is a message to followers of Christ that we have to begin to check those thoughts at the door. Yeah. And really at the end of the day, uh, that whole aspect of we're captives by a narrative, but we get to choose which narrative that is. And if you guys are keep listening, we're going to talk to you about the narrative that you need to be captivated by. All right. We're going to continue the conversation about talking about false narratives. And here's what's really, this is actually funny. So let's talk about something light and let's talk about something funny. But you guys, okay. In, tw in 2013, a public zoo in China, in the third largest province in China, actually temporarily shut down due to an unusual problem. Visitors discovered that the zoo's lion, come 
come on, get ready to laugh, was actually a dog posing as a lion. And according to a report, (laughs) right, it's so funny. According to a report in Beijing newspaper, the fraud came to light when a mother and her young son visited the zoo and the animal labeled as an African lion, quote unquote, actually started barking. Oh my gosh. That is is hilarious. Okay. The outraged mother said the zoo's absolutely cheating us. I paid good money for the tickets and I feel defrauded. So zookeepers actually admitted that their so-called lion was actually a Tibetan uh, mastiff, a large dog with a furry brown coat. And they also admitted that other zoo animals had been mislabeled. I mean, this is, this is classic. They're trying to create a narrative that is not true. And friends, the truth will always prevail. So when you create a false narrative, it's always going to crumble. Why? Because truth will always surface in the long run. I love the metaphor when he says that the quote unquote African lion started barking. And I think that is the metaphor. And when you believe a false narrative, just remember at a certain point, the African lion will start barking. (laughs) You're going to know. I just got to say that's ghetto. Like I I grew up by a ghetto zoo. Y'all have heard my story. This is too much. That the lion is actually a Tibetan mastiff, large dog with a furry brown coat. Wow. You know, there's another example that a guy by the name of Chamath Palihapitiya, uh, uh, Indian, but raised in the States in Canada. He's now 45 years of age. He's a venture capitalist, uh, uh, worth a couple billion dollars. He also is a minority shareholder, owner in the NBA's Golden State Warriors. It's interesting because he was formerly employed, actually not just employed, he was executive level in Facebook, a high exec. And he was talking, but one time at Stanford Graduate School of Business, he said something very interesting as it relates to false narratives being pushed and the meta narrative, the true overarching story. And here's his quote as he's talking to this uh, graduate school. He says, the short-term dopamine-driven feedback loops that we have created are destroying how society works, he warned. He says, we curate our lives around this perceived sense of perfection because we get rewarded in the short term. And he's basically explaining how Facebook corrodes social discourse. So that's the backdrop. So again, let me say this part. He says, we curate our lives around this perceived sense of perfection. We get rewarded in the short term. We get signals. We get little heart emojis, likes, thumbs up, and we conflate that with value. And we conflate it with truth, he says. And instead, what it really is, is fake, brittle popularity that leaves you even more vacant and empty before you did it. Come on, somebody. This is a dude that was a, you know, executive level at Facebook. Senior executive level. Thank you. And then he finishes by saying, but then we reach for another hit. This addiction now plagues Facebook's entire user base of 2 billion people, he says, all by design. You don't realize it, but you're being programmed. And this is what he said. And when I think about it, I think about, man, there's no doubt about it that there are narratives that are driven by social media and by literally the addiction. We're already aware that many people, the first thing they do when they get on the morning, cut on their phone. Last thing people are doing when they go to sleep at night, they cut on their phone, checking social media. And there is in his own estimation, something that you're encouraged to reach for. And he called it fake brittle popularity. Drop the mic, y'all. That's me. My goodness. I tell you what, hearing him say that you're being programmed, it makes me want to break, you know, delete all my social media accounts because I'm like, I will not be programmed. And then I realize we're using it for the gospel. (laughs) Right? So you can take something that wants to take you into a narrative that isn't God's highest. And yet you can actually use that for the kingdom, which is what obviously we're we're aiming to do. And I know that many of our listeners are aiming for the same thing. Hey, we're going to jump into the Hundo P segment. We haven't done one of these for a minute. And if you're new to the Keep It 100, 
Islander tribe. This is where we ask questions and Sean and I take time to answer them. All right, let's dive right in. How can narratives impact society? You know, narratives actually shape our perceptions, our perceptions form our realities, and our realities influence our choices and our actions. Narratives shape opportunities and how we see ourselves as well as how others see us. Powerful narratives actually become brands and wow. these brands affect everything we do. So changing narratives actually change the world. Continuously repeated narratives make up the basis of behavioral patterns in society. Next question. How influential is a narrative? Narratives are influential because they create emotional connections that make actions and ideas seem real and make our thinking and values explicit. And you know, they can give our listeners this powerful visceral sense of what the philosophy is promoting. So in other words, the narratives can get you caught up in your feeling. It can create a flow of thinking. It begins to feed value systems that individuals aren't even conscious of that are influencing their thought process. And they become ubiquitous to start to rule our lives without us even noticing it. Narratives, bottom line, narratives are central to sense making and the attribution of meaning to events occurring in our everyday life. Make no mistake about it. Narratives are influential. Third question. Why are narratives so powerful? You know, this is a great question because we have to understand narratives are also powerful because they are called to action to others. So they bring people together, actually. If it's a threat-based narrative, we've seen this. It brings people together in fear and amplifies the fear in every single person. But in contrast, opportunity-based narratives actually bring people together who share excitement about the opportunity ahead. Collective excitement draws out even more excitement and we're encouraged to act even more boldly in our quest for the opportunity. So in a world that's increasingly enveloped in fear, we need to become much more aware in crafting opportunity-based narratives that will help us move beyond fear because obviously anything fear-based ultimately is not productive or healthy. Last question. Who spreads a narrative? That is a great question. And really, I believe that there are three components to the spreading of a narrative. The first component is the originator. It's usually a small but passionate faction, maybe a remnant of people that kind of we would use Christian terminology, who care more about an issue than everyone else. They are the early adopters. They tend to dwell in, in, in these siloed information spaces where they fuel a radicalization around a topic. They frame that first narrative. They put forth the blogs. They put together the memes. They put together the tweets. They get on social media and they uh, begin to work towards getting the ball rolling because they're very serious about it. So the first component of who spreads the narrative is the originator. But next are the amplifiers. These are groups that are more interested in the social engagement than in one particular topic. Uh, the largest amplifiers that we see in society as an example are usually political amplification networks designed to support a rational issue or representative. Uh, amplifiers can be found in mainstream platforms like Twitter or large subreddit and are helpful for the escalation and gaining attention. So amplifiers are so important because you can have an originator, but if you don't have an amplifier, word doesn't get out. But finally, the third component of who spreads a narrative is the embracers. And these are the ones who incarnate these ideas as a lifestyle in a day-to-day -day fashion. They are the boots on the ground. They become the walking websites of the narrative and philosophy, and they permeate their friend and social networks in a relational way so that the narrative becomes mainstream. So if you think about who spreads a narrative, it really takes a lot of different people. And if we think of it in terms of the Christian lens, we need folks that are willing. We know the originators, but we need people who will be the amplifiers and the embracers. That's so good. You know, as you know, today we're talking about you can't escape the meta narrative. So I want to take a moment as we continue this conversation about breaking down what is actually a meta narrative. So the word itself is somewhat intimidating, right? It's not a word that we use in our normal everyday conversation. When we talk about meta narrative, we're simply 
simply referring to the quote unquote big story, the story that gives everything else its proper place within the story. So the first thing I really want to address is our biblical narrative. As followers of Jesus, what is the biblical narrative? It's the overall storyline by which we can understand the entire Bible. It tells us that we were created to know God, but we lost this knowledge when sin came. So in mercy, God then chose a people to walk with them and then to experience him through the centuries until God completely restores our lost knowledge of him in a coming of a redeemer. When we find ourselves, come on, when we find ourselves in the plot line of God's story of redemption, God's story becomes part of our own. And that's where we experience transformation. I know that's where I've experienced transformation in my own life. I know that's where Sean's experienced his transformation is we understand God's story of redemption is not just a concept or a story for other people. It's a story for you. It's a story for me. I love boo what you said that the meta narrative is the story that gives everything else its proper place within the story. Mm-hmm, that's, that's so good. powerful. Yeah. And in, in order to do it, gang, we got to grow in our understanding of the details of the of Christianity's meta narrative. The primary source for grasping the many aspects of that story is, of course, Scripture, the Word of God. It's always going to come back to the Word of God. And we got to be aware also of the numerous rhetoric, the false lenses that come to replace, refute, or ridicule the Christian meta narrative by counterfeit stories, by weak arguments that try to take people not only from eternity, but from their right now purpose. And a great scripture for this is Colossians 2.8. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophies, empty deception according to men or elementary principles according to this world rather than according to Christ. So it's letting us know in that verse, Paul is warning the church at Colossae, be aware of the rhetoric and false lenses because they're coming to rob you. It is an ideological warfare. So we're ju- we've just talked about the biblical meta narrative, right? And that's so key as followers of Jesus. But let's also talk about weaponized narratives. This is an interesting term, but I think it's one we need to become really familiar with because a weaponized narrative is promoting the idea of a narrative that implies manipulation. Come on, we know where that's coming from. A perception to ensure a particular outcome during debate between proponents of opposing views. Narratives as currently employed have a, you know, have a relationship to truth at best, but increasingly the idea of a narrative is being weaponized in contemporary society. We see this again and again, that people try to create these fear-based narratives that sway public opinion, sway the majority that actually gets mass agreement and following, but it's out of manipulation and it's actually become a weaponized narrative. Narratives, narrative warfare employs weaponized narratives that are spun from highly selective half-truths. Ooh, catch that somebody, a half-truth. So some of it sounds good. Some of it sounds right, but it's actually deception and it's not actual truth. It has something that sounds truthful. Outright lies, false accusations, distorted and altered quotations, emotional appeals, sensational outrage, fear-mongering, blame-shifting, intimidating threats, victim posturing, virtue signaling, fabricated imagery. These are all facets of contemporary argument that we see in our media today. We see in our society, we see it in social media, all of this narrative warfare, right? It's all kind of these uh, little uh, clips and blips, so to speak, where people take it and they work it in the angle in which serves their case, serves their perspective. So when I speak of weaponized narratives, I'm speaking of the creation and the employment of a narrative that drives the activity of those who hear the narrative. So increasingly, we are witnessing in our society an increasing appeal to narratives rather than truth. So this is what we really want you to walk away with when we're talking about a meta narrative. We have to understand the only truth is the biblical meta narrative. If it doesn't land with the biblical meta narrative, you have to understand and and really compare it to what a scripture say in order to find the absolute truth. Tr- scripture is the absolute truth. You know, today, basically to to kind of 
of complete that thought that you're talking about. You have to be discerning. You have to be deliberate. That's right. And the Bible calls us to be vigilant, to gird up the loins of our mind. Uh, It is a picture of being in battle. And we are. And a great example of this is in Mark chapter five, uh, there was this synagogue leader by the name of of Jairus. And in Mark chapter five, we know this is that Jesus is, is obviously doing what Jesus does. He's healing. He's mending lives. He's changing and transforming people's existence. And there's this synagogue leader, Jairus, and we understand his daughter got ill. She got very sick. And obviously, built into the story, you know he probably pursued all the natural means he possibly could to get his daughter well, but none of it was working. And so all of a sudden, he realized, hey, I hear about this Jesus. i got to get my daughter to Jesus, or I've got to get to Jesus and get Jesus to come to my daughter because she was probably too sick to travel. But think about it. How difficult must it have been for Jairus to come to Jesus? Because Mark indicates that he was a ruler of one in the synagogues. Well, you need to understand something, that the synagogue leaders were religious leaders at the time. They were threatened and offended by Jesus because he had healed so many people on the Sabbath. They barred him from, or or tried to bar him from cutting off his ministry within the synagogue. And so all of a sudden you're Jairus and you got to fight against, because we're talking about the fight against narratives, right? He had to fight against the narrative of his peers. All of his colleagues in ministry disapprove of Jesus and his methods. And if you go after Jesus, you're going to look disgraced in their eyes. At the same time, your baby girl, 12-year-old girl, is at home fighting for her life. So he had to fight through the narrative that I could just imagine this dude sitting around a round table, listening to all these guys' opinion about Jesus. And all of a sudden, he had to go back and say, you know what? I got to break through their sub-narratives and tap to a meta-narrative because I'm desperate that I need help that their opinions can't help me with. But then there was also another fight of another uh, uh, narrative is the narrative of his own logic because he had to overcome pride. He's a leader, but yet he's going to have to fall at the feet of another spiritual leader. He had to come against a prejudice that had been built up in his mind, embarrassment, before he could come to this Nazarene itinerant preacher that had been rejected by the leading scholars and teachers of the day. And think about it today. There's so many people that are trying to shame Christianity. They're trying to politicize Christianity before your eyes. They're trying to make Christianity irrelevant. They're trying to make Christianity anti-scientific. But I'm telling you what, there's a generation that's desperate enough, something in them is dead and dying, that I believe they're going to break through the narrative of their peers and fight through the narrative of their logic. And somehow this dude broke through his own peers, broke through his own logic, and he found himself at the feet of Jesus and asking Jesus for help, which leads me to the final thing. As he gets to Jesus, boo, and Jesus says, yep, I'll come to your house. Isn't that awesome? It is a Jesus that he'll come to your house. Come on, somebody. So powerful. Your house may not be clean. Your house may be messy. You may be living on the other side of the tracks. You may have somebody sick and dying. You may have somebody in there. You don't know what's going to come out their mouth, but Jesus will come to your house. He still makes house calls, y'all. Come on. So he had to fight against the narrative of the masses because during the time that Jairus is getting Jesus to come to his house, there's an interruption where there's a woman who's been suffering from a blood disorder 12 years. So help me with this, boo. Here is a girl 12 years of age, but at the same time she's being born, there's a woman over here that is having a blood disorder diagnosis. She's 12 years she suffered from this disease, 12 years old, the daughter. What do you think is the significance of that? You know, when you study out the numerology, the biblical numerology of what 12 means, there's like perfect governmental authority, whatnot. And why I think that's so powerful is God allowed his son to display the authority of God. That even over a condition that plagued a woman for 12 years, even over a little girl that's actually laying dead in her bed, that the authority of Christ is able to come into a situation 
situation that looks dead, that looks barren, that looks hopeless, that looks chronic, that looks incurable. And Jesus comes into the situation is like, I have the supreme authority. I am the supreme authority over every situation that opposes my original design of your life. And why I love that is tw- it's like a 12, 12. It's like a double authority. It's like Jesus coming and going, no. Do you understand who I am? When I come into a room, the dead are raised. When I come into a situation, when a woman that was plagued with the issue of blood for 12 years touches the hem of my garment, she's instantly healed because simply by what I carry and who I am, my authority changes everything. That is so powerful. And so just like you said, Jesus stops. He heals a woman that has the issue of blood for 12 years. But in that interruption, how many of you know there's interruptions in life? Divine interruptions. They're divine interruptions. And sometimes you think the interruption puts you past the timeline of your breakthrough and your miracle. But let me just tell you something. We're not just talking about a narrative. Jesus doesn't have the narrative. He has the meta narrative. Mm -hmm. And so the masses, a group of people come to Jairus during this delay and says, hey, don't bother the master anymore. She's dead. So imagine now here's the narrative. He fought through the narrative of his peers. He fought through the narrative of logic. Now here's the narrative of the masses, the narrative of his circumstances. She's dead. So now there is this sense that it's too late. Girl's dead. Give it up. But what does Jesus challenge Jairus to do? He says, do not fear, only believe. I believe that there are narratives out just to get you afraid. There are narratives out to get you to break with what Jesus already told you. You're walking with Jesus. You got some Jesus movement going in your life. Remember, Jesus is walking with Jairus. So this represents the move of God. It's moving in your direction, but the enemy wants to interrupt you and cause you to fear and pull out of that walk with the Lord. But although that word, she's dead, came to him, he chose to believe. But guess what, gang? He gets to the house and Jesus says, hey, she's not uh, dead. She's just asleep. And everybody in the house starts laughing. So you imagine you got all these people at your house over the dead girl and they're crying. They're mourning. Jesus walks in the house, walks in the room, says, hey, she's not dead. She's asleep. And they start laughing. So the atmosphere of the house is chaotic. It's cynical. It's confusing. Nobody's believing Jesus. This could not be healthy for Jairus' faith. Nothing. But then what Jesus did was dramatic and unexpected. He chased everybody out, but the three disciples and the parents. And all of a sudden, as he put everybody out the room, and let me just stop and say, keep it 100. Maybe there's some people that you've been around that aren't good for you. Maybe some people right now, you're in a situation where there's some peeps that have been removed from your life. And it's just God getting ready to do a personal touch. Because once he got them out the room, he touched the young girl and she was raised from the dead. That is powerful. And get this, keep it 100, gang. The lesson of it all is this. Trust Jesus to define reality and truth, not the crowd. Isn't that the lesson of the moral of the story? Come on. Trust Jesus to define reality. He says she sleep. He says do not fear, only believe. And they had a sub-narrative. Jesus had the meta-narrative. And think about it. They're, they're telling him, why trouble the teacher any further? The professional mourners laugh when Jesus said the child is not dead but sleeping. That's Mark 5, 39. When all hope seems lost, when life goes from bad to dead, we need to see things not like the crowd, but like Jesus. Oh my goodness. That will breathe. That would, that was awesome. I love that. I really keep 100 tribe. Go back and listen to that again. If you need it, there's so much truth packed in what Sean just said. You know, I want to talk about what psychologists are actually saying about the power of our brain. Come on, Because our brain actually has cognitive natural biases. And this is what's really interesting. I want us to understand that there's three built-in features of the human brain that may contribute to the 
the spread of false information and divisiveness. The first thing we have to understand is the brain actually has what we call a truth bias. The moment you understand something you read or hear, your brain believes it's true. That's why the moment just after is so critical. This is when your brain does the cognitive work of assessing if new information should be unbelieved. You know, that's so significant because there came that moment when they told Jairus, don't bother the master anymore, your daughter's dead. But Jesus said, do not be afraid, only believe. So there's a truth bias in that what they said to him, he wanted to believe, oh, it's over with, she's dead. But then moment Jesus hit it, it was like you said, the new information that has to be unbelieved. So you're right. His brain had a truth bias. That is so good. You know, the second area of the brain, we have to understand, we actually have what we call a novelty bias. That's when attention, our attention is captured by what's novel, what's new, what's surprising, what's actually fear-inducing information. So we're captured by that. We're a bit mesmerized when something new, novel, surprising, or fearful comes our way, whether you find that on social media feeds or it's generated in your own mind or watching the news or read a podcast or have a conversation with someone. It's novelty's ballistic and automatic pull on your attention can happen without even your awareness. And this happens over and over and over again, where all of a sudden your brain believes this is true. It's new and it's fearful and it's scary. And all of a sudden it becomes what, you know, this famous phrase that sometimes we all kind of roll our eyes at, but it's like, this is my truth. It becomes your narrative because your brain has locked into the novelty bias. And then the third area that our brain actually has and talking about biases, we actually have a confirmation bias. This is really interesting. So what you believe actually narrows your attention. Did you know that? Information that aligns with what you already believe is given precedence in your attention networks, while disconfirming information goes virtually unnoticed. So to halt the rise in false narratives and divisiveness, we must overcome these brain biases. That means you and I need to be aware of the ways in which our brain can lead us astray. What I love about Jairus is he actually had this beautiful bias, but a confirmation bias can actually be a good thing. You know, there's pros and cons to this, right? But he had a belief, his confirmation belief was, if I get to Jesus, if I just get to Jesus, my daughter can be healed. And that belief made him push through social protocol, his reputation, what he looked like, everything that you were talking about, because he had the confirmation and the belief system, then the meta narrative was Jesus changes things. Jesus can heal. He had a belief system, the narrative within him, and it's what pushed through. And his daughter was literally raised from the dead because he had confirmation bias in the good way. That's so good. Because we've often heard this narrative narrative kind of slogan, what you believe doesn't really matter as long as you're sincere. False. Very false. If, man, Jairus would have believed the wrong thing, his daughter would have remained dead. What he believed was a difference of life and and death. death. Keep it 100, try. Now is that moment where we have the Keep It 100 takeaways. In this episode, we're talking about three things we must do about narratives. Number one, we need to measure our narratives against that of Jesus, i.e. the meta narrative, and see if it matches up. Most of us don't even take the time or avail ourselves of the opportunity to do that. Why? We're too tired. We just don't have the physical or mental energy to go on the journey to deconstruct our false narratives. A lot of talk about deconstruction, but many times people are using the deconstruction muscles on the gospel rather than deconstructing the false narratives. You're deconstructing the meta narrative. Reverse that thing and begin to deconstruct the false narratives, the sub narratives, and to begin to construct in our lives the Jesus narrative, which is the meta narrative. And many of us are walking around with false narratives. 
narratives. And here's why this is so important. We live at the mercy of our, our ideas and our narratives. And what we think determines how we live. If we think God is an angry God frowning on us and will only love us if we're good enough, then that narrative is going to be seen in how we live and how we judge other people. We've all been around, quote unquote, judgmental Christians. And I believe part of it is they have a narrative that God's always frowning at them. They don't know the love and the mercy of God. Or if we think that being an angry person or hating our enemies are good things, false narrative alert, <laughs> then uh, that too is going to be expressed in our day-to-day -day living. A lot of false narratives about God and human life are perpetuated in our world, sometimes in our churches. So you need to take those moments to measure your narrative against that of Jesus, the meta-narrative, the gospel of the King. See so if they match good. Up. The second Keep It 100 takeaway when we're talking about things we must do about our narratives. The second one is we cannot be afraid of changing our narratives or the foundation of our lives. As someone once said, the truth has nothing to fear from inspection. Ooh. Woo. I'm going to say that again for the people in the back. You know, someone once said, truth has nothing to fear from inspection. Our faith can only be strengthened in the long term during times of asking questions because it leads to a stronger, more vibrant relationship with the Lord. And it's easy because we often identify our narratives with reality, pure and simple. And Dallas Willard writes, and this is a powerful statement as well, to change our narratives is one of the most difficult and painful things in life. And yet it is some of the most necessary things we must do. Mm. We have to make sure that the narratives in our lives line up with the word of God. And for some of us, for some of us, it is walking through that process of allowing God to transform the narratives in which we built upon the ones you have learned within your family structure, the ones that have been persuaded through in society and actually detaching from those false narratives and walking from a place of truth. Our third and final keep it 100 takeaway for this week is we need to claim Jesus's narratives. Our narratives are the most powerful things in our lives, yet we have the power over our narratives, which then can help us direct and control our feelings. This is really, really key. The challenge before us is to recognize which ideas and narratives are actually governing our lives. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ and the narratives Jesus told himself that we find the true narratives of who God is. So we have to become students of scripture and thus students of the narratives of Jesus. It is upon scripture we stand and by scripture we live. I believe that even as you're listening to this, there's a great example in church history. You guys know I love revival history. Martin Luther, the reformer, not the civil rights activist, Martin Luther, he's going to be led to trial uh, before the corrupt Roman papacy back in the day. Martin Luther declared, unless I am convicted by scripture, I do not accept the authority of popes or councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. In closing out this episode, realize life does not operate well when immersed in false narratives. Plans deteriorate, projects fail, relationships are lost for the false stories we've crafted and rehearsed to ourselves and others. And for those reasons, truth is your friend. False narratives are your worst enemy. Thanks so much for tuning into the Keep It 100 podcast. Make sure to rate, review, and refer us to your friends. And be sure to click that subscribe button so that you're alerted as soon as new episodes drop. Help us get the word out. Share this link on your social media platforms and check us out at Sean and KristaSmith.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Sean and Krista Smith Ministries. We would love to hear from you on how this podcast has impacted you. So be sure to show us some love. Hey, Keep It 100 Tribe, you will not want to miss our next episode of Keep It 100. And remember, relief may change your circumstance, but a revelation will change you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Keep It 100 podcast with Sean and Krista Smith. 
keep up with us on Facebook and Instagram and seanandkristasmith.com where you can discover more resources. If this podcast has impacted you, please subscribe and review wherever you listen to your podcast. Keep it 100.